Dr. Allen mentioned our Royals text thread. Uh, Dr. Allen came to uh, Midwestern when the Royals were good. And so he was under the impression that that's the way it always was. And there's a few of us on that thread who've been Royals fans our entire lives, and we said, no, this is the way it's always been. And uh, so it's actually a work of discipleship that we're doing for him in terms of the Royals. Uh, it is uh, good to be with you again here at uh, Midwestern Seminary for the distinct privilege of speaking in chapel service. I'm kind of a date weirdo. I'm one of these kinds of people that just remember random dates and times. And so when I was asked to speak today, it occurred to me that the first time that I was asked to speak at Midwestern Seminary in chapel was on a November day, 14 years ago, actually next week, a snowy November day, 14 years ago next week. Now, one of the blessings of being in the same place for many years is the perspective that can only be gained over time. And when I arrived in Kansas City in 2007, uh, it would be generous to say that Midwestern's reputation wasn't what it is today. As a matter of fact, its disrepute had been decades in the making. I've told numerous people on many occasions that if you turned the theological controversy in the mid to late 20th century denominational life upside down, it would have been engraved, made in Kansas City, uh, because of the, the, the commentaries that were produced by professors of this school in the 60s that led to that denominational war. And perhaps because of the fallout of that and a host of other reasons, uh, enrollment was low and the facilities were not at all uh, adequate. So when I spoke in chapel in November 2009, uh, this building did not exist. The chapel was where the Spurgeon Library is now, and it had all the grandeur and beauty of a high school cafeteria. I kid you not. So by preaching for what is now the fourth time in this beautiful facility to a student body, that has exploded in number into a faculty that has become the envy of conservative theological education. I am reminded of the journey that this institution has been on under Dr. Allen's leadership, and I'm grateful to have been able to witness the rebirth of it up close, and I'm grateful for Dr. Allen's friendship. And so now to the task at hand, I'd like for you, if you would, please to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah. And find chapter 3, verse 14. And having found it, if you would please stand to honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Father, I pray that in the moments we have, you will remind us of the joy and the delight that we find in you and that you find in us. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, 
everybody knows, it doesn't matter where you are. If you say amen, everybody says, well, I guess I sit down at Seabrew for sit down. (laughs) I came to faith in Christ as a sixth grader, which means that my faith began to come alive and become my own in the mid to late 70s, which means that my faith began to come alive and become my own in the era in which a hyper-dispensational God was looking for any chance to cut my head off at the hands of the Antichrist. Spring and fall-traveling evangelist warned me that everyone that I knew and loved could disappear at any moment and that I might be, probably would be, left behind if I didn't, as one Oklahoma Baptist pastor at summer camp warned, know for sure if I'd said the right prayer in the right way. So from the moment that I surrendered my life to follow Jesus on March the 26th, 1978, through my sophomore year in college, my walk with Jesus was a terror-filled existence trying to please a God who apparently would just as soon leave me as look at me. God in His kindness and His grace brought me through that season of fear-fueled doubt to a place of confidence where the one in whom I had believed convinced me that he was able to guard until that day what had been entrusted to me. But that wildly insecure younger version of Derek hitched a ride into my adulthood without me ever being fully aware of it until these last several months. And the vehicle he flagged down to travel with me was my personal prayer life. Uh, A year before COVID hit, I encountered Donald Whitney's little book, Praying the Bible. And I'm not overstating it when I say that that book changed my life. My prayer life is as robust as it has ever been thanks to the simple method that is outlined in that book. But sometime this summer, I began to notice something as I prayed Scripture. As I prayed Scripture, I was always confessing my shortcomings. Now, to be clear... I'm using the phrase shortcomings instead of sin intentionally. I do not believe that it is possible to grow in Christ-likeness if we constantly rationalize the ways our lives are in clear rebellion against God's clear instruction. Confession of sin in prayer is necessary. But that's not what I was constantly confessing. I was constantly confessing what a loser I was. I was constantly giving God a growing list of all of the ways that He should be disappointed in me. I can be embarrassingly shallow and undisciplined and hypersensitive. I haven't memorized enough Scripture. I haven't led enough people to Jesus. My daily devotions are not long enough or deep enough. So if the Antichrist were looking for a head to lop off, I would totally understand why God would send him my way first. In short, my prayers were always mired in the winter of self-flagellation and never got to the Christmas of delighting in God. Or to him, delighting in me. I mean, I've got this friend who is at the top of a thankfully very short list of pastor friends who let sin completely wreck their lives. God restored him and his marriage and after years away has given him a little church to pastor in the twilight years of his vocational life. But he still has this thing, this 
this sin in his past, and yet when he talks about God, it is always about his delight in God and God's delight in him. The word he uses all the time is beloved. My friend who is at the top of the list of ministry friends who have blown it sees himself as the beloved of God. So why is my God always disappointed in me? This is what I began to wrestle with. And obviously it comes back to how the fearful younger Derek continues to distort older Derek's vision of God. Earlier this year, I was talking to someone who's essentially become for me a spiritual coach about all that I had started to become aware of in my prayer life, and he began to direct my attention to all the places in Scripture where we read of God's delight in us. And so today, I want to talk to you about how I'm working toward the confession of the psalmist in Psalm 18, 19. He delighted in me in the hopes that if my story resonates with you at all, you will find the help that I am finding. Which brings us to Zephaniah chapter 3. Almost nothing's known about this guy. And let's be honest, some of you very kind of discreetly looked at the table of contents so that you could find his book. Uh, The information on him is so scant that one scholar says that he actually even hides in his own book. We do know from the superscription of the book that he was a distant relative of King Hezekiah and that his ministry took place during the reign of King Josiah of Judah. And beyond that, it's really just speculation. His message is clear, though. It was one of coming judgment for sin. Not just Judah's, but for the nation surrounding her. But it was also one of God's coming exaltation of his people as a demonstration of his faithfulness to them. And it's into that message of hope that I want to step this morning. As we walk through the verses I just read, we will do so with an eye as to how it reframes distorted visions of God that keep us from delighting in him and keep us from comprehending his delight in us. And so I want us to first see how these verses call us to rejoice in God's invitation. Rejoice in God's invitation. The prophet begins this section by jamming four imperatives into verse 14. Sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exult. The command here is to engage in full-bodied, loud, rowdy, get you fired in some churches, holy joy in the Lord. The command is issued specifically to God's people. O daughter of Zion, O Israel, O daughter of Jerusalem. And the epicenter of this call is one place, the heart. The emotional center of the human person in Jewish anthropology. What the prophet is doing is calling on the people to reach down into the deepest parts of themselves to dislodge an eruption of joy in the Lord. And as a prophet, he speaks not from his own mind. He is making known the mind of God. In other words, this invitation to experience God and joy is an invitation that God is issuing Himself. God invites us to rejoice in Him. So, why do we frequently decline the invitation? Aside from the obvious answer that sin pushes us to hide from God, like Adam and Eve, why do we always say, 
uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Well, let's be honest and say that there are times where we're just not all that happy with God. Uh, for those of us in ministry, like Jeremiah, we experience times, and if you've not, you will experience times where we're ticked off that God called us into ministry in the first place. In Jeremiah 27, the, the prophet says, O Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I and you have prevailed. Jeremiah is saying that he believes he's been deceived, coerced, seduced into his vocation as prophet. And that the Lord was the one who had done the deceiving, coercion, and seducing. And he's angry at himself for letting it happen. One translation reads, Lord, you coerced me into being a prophet. And I allowed you to do it. You overcame my resistance and prevailed over me. And Jeremiah's feeling this because he's done exactly what the Lord has asked him to do. And he's been abused as a result. In the midst of ministry trials, sometimes we just don't feel very rejoicey. But sometimes it's just life, isn't it? Disappointment, grief, reversal cause us to lean more into lament than we do praise. And sometimes it's just the busyness and the pace of living that keeps us from ever getting around to hearing the still, small voice inviting us to our purpose, which is to delight in Him. But God's invitation is persistent. Through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 1, God calls His people to receive from Him water, milk, and wine. Metaphors, obviously, but ones we can easily grasp. We need water to live. So God is inviting us to find life in Him. Check. Got it. Milk nourishes. So God is inviting us to find our strength in Him. Check. Got it. But Welch's, or wine, is given to gladden the heart of man, according to the psalmist. So God is inviting us to rejoice and celebrate His goodness with Him. And frequently from us, it's no check. It's no got it. Over and over again in Scriptures, we are invited by God to delight in Him. In fact, the Scriptures conclude with this invitation, spoken simply as come. My point is that when we see how pervasive God's invitation to rejoice in Him is in Scripture, it shifts our vision from a God who is disappointed in us all of the time and who needs to hear from us all the time that we get why He's disappointed in us all the time and helps us to see a God who can't wait to welcome us and to fold us into an experience of blissful delight in Him. This is who our God really is. We should rejoice in God's invitation to rejoice. The next call in these verses that reframes distorted visions of God is the call to meditate on God's deliverance. And I hate to put it in such a pithy way because what we see Zephaniah doing here is nothing less than a call to focus on the mind-blowing nature of the salvation that the people of Jerusalem could expect because of God's faithfulness to them. It's easy to overlook 
Because we've grown so used to the language that it doesn't take our breath away anymore. But looking ahead to the eschatological future that awaited Israel, Zephaniah saw a day when the judgments, the very judgments that he spent the bulk of his book outlining, are taken away. God would no longer stretch out his hand against Judah as he said he would in Zephaniah 1.4. The enemies, the, the very enemies that God would use to pour out his wrath against the people would be cleared away. And then he says this, The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. God would be in their midst. In their midst. That's our present reality, isn't it? God is in the midst of us through Christ. He has he is encamped with us and we have beheld him, the glory of God. And there's something underneath all of that which is stunning and is the key to what we are talking about this morning. So to see it, I want you to consider something with me. Most of us spend our time playing the B-side of salvation and listening to it over and over again. Now, most of you are younger than me. Most crowds contain people who are mostly younger than me anymore. So let me explain. When I was growing up, if you heard a song that you liked on the radio, you would go to the record store, or if you lived in a very small town like me, Walmart, and you would buy a single there was a seven-inch vinyl disc that had one song on each side. Now, the A side was the hit. That was the song that you heard on the radio that made you want to buy the record. The B side was just another random song for the album, or in some cases, a song that didn't make the album. Now, don't get me wrong. B side songs were fantastic at times. They could be great. Hound Dog by Elvis Presley was a B side. Blackwater by the Doobie Brothers was a B-side. No one knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> Maybe this one, Good Riddance by Green Day. Still don't get it. Was a B-side. They could be really good songs, but that's not why you bought the single. You bought the single for the hit. Now, we spend most of our time thinking about salvation, don't we, in light of our forgiveness. And forgiveness of our sin is a B-side hit if there ever was one. It's great. We were guilty before God and the blood of Jesus has given us pardon. To quote the rural southern preachers from my early days as a pastor, if that don't bless your blesser, it's broke. It is great to be forgiven. But it's the B-side the A-side, the music that should stop us in our tracks and make us want salvation more than anything else is this. God's salvation removes the offense of sin to His holiness. That's not the same thing as forgiveness. Not by a long shot, related though it may be. If we were only forgiven 
We might no longer be hellbound, but we'd still be separated. We'd be pardoned sinners, but we would not be indwelt by the Spirit of God. Forgiveness takes away what sin has done to me, but that forgiveness is only possible because the cross of Jesus satisfies the offense of my sin before God. And with God's wrath against us satisfied, He is able to be in our midst. And that is what Israel heard of salvation in Zephaniah chapter 3. It's what Paul is speaking of in Colossians 1 when he says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And when we meditate on that deliverance from mere forgiveness to the abiding presence of God in our lives, our delight in him explodes and we are able to understand the depth of the final call of these verses to revel in God's joy. These verses... Help us reframe a distorted vision of God by calling us to revel in God's joy. A.T. Robinson, Robertson calls Zephaniah 3.17 the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Let's look again at the part of the verse that led him to say that, the last part of verse 17. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now let's stand back from those verses for a little bit and just take it all in. There, right in front of us, we see God unrestrainedly delighting in those that He has saved. God is seen rejoicing with gladness. The words rejoicing and gladness taken together communicate the idea of a whole-bodied enthusiasm. So think about that. God is bringing His whole self to bear for the purpose of rejoicing over, delighting in those He has redeemed. Now look at that last phrase. He will exult over you with loud singing. Here's what is mind-blowing about that, and I, I'll bet it will make you uncomfortable. The word exult is almost always used in reference to our response to God's attributes or work in the Old Testament. So think about that. We are being told that the joy that you and I experience in rapturous moments of worship is something like what God experiences in us. As one of the redeemed of God, Zephaniah is telling me that God looks upon me with a full-bodied, enthusiastic, heart-exploding joy. And I believe that the vehicle that God is using in my life more than any other to drive this point home right now is being a grandpa. I've got two, and I've got two on the way, so life is pretty stinking good right now. But let me tell you, undoubtedly, the very best moment I have had to this point of being a grandpa. It happened this past Labor Day. It had been two months since we had seen the two we have right now. So after church that Sunday, we made a quick, quick trip to Iowa where they live, ostensibly to deliver some items to their parents. But we didn't care to see their parents. They knew that. We were there to see our grandkids. And when we pulled up into their driveway... They were in the front yard playing. And Mimi jumped out of the car first. 
She's always first. And our oldest, June, ran and jumped in her arms. And then I got out of the car and I yelled my nickname for her, which is Jelly Bean. So crazy grandpa gets out of the car and yells, Jelly Bean! And she got an embarrassed little toddler smile on her face and giggled. And she said, Pops. And then she ran and jumped into my arms. And in that moment, she rejoiced in me. But I promise you that it paled in comparison to my joy in her. And just, that just, that just scratches the surface of what Zephaniah is saying of God's joy in us in these verses. And we haven't even covered the biggest piece of this three-phrase three riff yet. The middle phrase of this triad describing God's joy is the one that the ESV translates, He will quiet you by His love. If you've ever studied this verse at all, you'll see that there's, that there's a diversity of opinion on how to best translate it. The ESV says God quiets us in His love, the idea being that He alleviates our fear of Him or that His love leaves us speechless. Other translations, like the RSV, say God renews us in His love. The idea being that we are renewed by the experience of His love. But the other possibility is that God is rendered speechless by His love for us, as the New American Standard and the Christian Standard Bible translate the phrase. So there are three really good options, and exegetical integrity here requires us to say that absolutely, absolute certainty isn't possible. But a speechless God does make sense in context, as the other two phrases here speak of God's inward disposition towards us. He rejoices, He results, so it makes contextual sense to say He's speechless. And I'll bet that makes everybody here uncomfortable. Does the idea that God is, and even saying this sounds borderline, overwhelmed by His love for us feel weird? Does, does, does it make Him less in our minds? Well, it certainly does if we are thinking of ourselves as the ultimate source of God's joy. That would in reality make us gods, and that is absurd and blasphemous. But if God's joy is found in Himself... And if delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of His beloved Son is the preeminent manifestation of God's joy, then His joy in us is ultimately a rejoicing in, as John Piper once said, His own handiwork. And so Piper asked, does it belittle Michelangelo to rejoice with tears as he looks at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel? Nor does it belittle God when the divine work of your redemption is done and all the millions are gathered before the throne, the humble and the lowly, that God should break forth in singing and rejoice over you with all His heart and with all His soul. And I would add, even to be speechless at the sight. God delights in us as His redeemed children. And He invites us to revel in His joy with Him as we meditate on the glories of His salvation, which we can't do 
if we constantly approach God of a mind that we're losers and that He is forced to tolerate us because of the gospel? How would it break my heart if my precious granddaughter, June, had said that Labor Day Sunday afternoon, Pops, you wouldn't want to be with me. I, I can't eat without making a mess. I, I sometimes, uh, I sometimes uh, can't understand what my parents are saying to me. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't run as fast as the neighbor kids because they're older than me. There's, there's just so much about me that you ought to be disappointed in. That would break my heart. And yet in prayer, many of us, thinking that it is really an act of piety are constantly going to God and saying, you probably are just putting up with me. God wants us to revel in all that He is to us and to experience the mind-blowing joy of, of Him reveling in His handiwork in our lives. And that's what I'm learning. Approaching my 58th birthday, after having been a follower of Jesus for, for, for approaching, frankly, 50 years, I am someone who's just now starting to learn of the great, great joy that my God take, takes in me as one of His children. And as I look out at a sea of faces that are decades behind me. I'm just saying to you, it feels pious, but it really is thinly disguised legalism to go before God constantly rehearsing not your sin which is necessary, but your shortcomings. You're the beloved of God because of His Son Jesus. He delights in you as He delights in Jesus. Rest in that and just see if your vision of God doesn't explode beyond the confines that you have for it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, continue to help me learn what it means to be your beloved through Christ the beloved. And Father, though scholars can debate the meaning of the 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 meaning of, of being quieted or being quiet in our verses today what is beyond dispute is that we see a god rejoicing with his full self in his redeemed and i pray father that for those here today who who maybe have just kind of quietly tucked away the mindset that they'll always be a disappointment to you, that they have caught a glimpse of who they really are to you so that their lives, Father, can begin to be filled with an effervescent joy that others notice and ask about. May all glory in all things go to you through your Son, Jesus. And it is by the Spirit you've given us We pray to you. Amen.